This is the sermon podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for a worship Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11.15 a.m. This is Lord of Life. There is a place for you here. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. A reading from Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord, and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength, he says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers. Kings shall see and stand up, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. First Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind. Just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I invite you to stand, please, for the reading of the gospel, which today comes from the fourth gospel, John, the first chapter. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. 
I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Please be seated. John is uh, big into saying, which translated means, he gives all these little asides to help us along. Um, hey, Danny, can you turn down my mic just a little bit? It sounds like it's, it's booming. Um, but one thing that he doesn't translate for us is Lamb of God. What does that mean? John proclaims Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you're like me, you just let that phrase kind of wash over you because we're so used to hearing about the Lamb of God. If you grew up in a more traditional church with stained glass windows, it's a fairly good bet that somewhere was that little round window with the Lamb holding that, the banner of victory, the Lamb of God, we hear it so often that we hardly think about it. But it seems to me that if we are going to understand what John the Baptist says, if we are going to understand where John the Gospel writer is going to take us, maybe we need to know what the Lamb of God is. With Luke, at the beginning of his Gospel, he made it clear why he was writing his Gospel. He said, Theophilus, so that you might know the truth of things. And now here through the lips of John the Baptist, John tells us why he's writing his gospel, so that he might be revealed to Israel. And who is this he? Jesus, the one he now proclaims to be the Lamb of God. 
I did not realize until I went and started doing a word search that John is the first one to use that phrase. John is the first one to come up with this idea and this image of the Lamb of God, which kind of makes me wonder where did it come from? Because the Jews were not, they were not terribly animal-connected people. Animals for them were simply resources. Being a nomadic people, they would, keep tro- they would keep flocks, they would have sheep, they would have goats, they might have camels. But always they had to earn their keep by what they could give back to the people. You didn't have a lamb because it was cute or fluffy or anything else. You had a lamb because of the wool it could provide, because of the milk and meat it might later provide because of the skin and clothing it could give. The lamb was simply a resource that you kept in order to live. But as far as these resources went, a lamb was special because if you wanted to give someone a gift or if you wanted to provide hospitality for a special someone visiting, you would prepare a lamb for them. Not only because a lamb's meat would be very tender, but because of what that lamb represented. That lamb represented everything that it could become. You were giving them not just this lamb, you were giving them all the resources that this lamb might have given you in its lifetime. Therefore, it was a more generous, a more munificent gift to give to someone. This carried over into the cult of sacrifice. And the, the Jews, like um, so many other tribal people, developed this sense of uh, quid pro quo, in worship. Sacrifice was necessary in order to keep God happy. When you live as a vulnerable being in a dangerous world, you need all the allies you can get and you want to make sure that God is on your side. When you are vulnerable to to droughts, to to windstorms, when you are vulnerable to hostile neighbors, you want to make sure that God is happy with you and that God will protect you. And the way that you control that situation is through sacrifice. When you have a special need, you come to make sacrifice to God. When you feel that God has been especially good to you, you want to make sure you thank God with a special sacrifice. And if you wanted to show God just how thankful you were, you would give a lamb. Again, because of what that lamb represented. All the potential that it represented. The people of Israel saw themselves as God's chosen people. They had been chosen among all the nations to become this example. 
God was using them to show what the reign of God could look like. And the understanding was that if they lived by God's commands, that if they kept God on their side, God would bless them and prosper them, and the nations would see this and be impressed and, frankly, be envious. They would look at Israel and say, wow, what a great place. I've never seen a place with such righteousness and justice, and and they live long and prosper. Let's go and be part of this. And so they would become this magnet that would that would draw all the world to them to learn the ways of the Lord and in so doing become a source of blessing for the world. The more that Israel prospered, the more brightly they shone, the more the peoples were attracted, the quicker world peace, salvation, shalom, oneness, rightness came into being. This worked great until they were defeated. Until they were not just defeated but crushed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians for all of their sacrifices, for all of their attempting to live by God's commands and be that example people They were defeated and carried off into exile. And this represented for them a crisis of unimaginable proportion. It's almost hard for us to imagine now. Because not only was it a national defeat, it was a personal and religious defeat. Their whole identity was based on being blessed by God. But if they had been crushed and taken into exile, they no longer had that identity. And if God was the one who had promised to bless them, did this mean that God had also been crushed and defeated? And so in the midst of this crisis, they had two options. Either accept that everything that they thought they knew about themselves and about God was wrong, and to go find another God to serve, or to radically rethink who God was, who they were, and how God worked in the world. In the midst of that exile, in the midst midst of that incredible suffering, they made a shift in thought Before they had seen themselves in a sense like the great high priests for the world, they were the ones who would make the sacrifice, who would would keep the law, who would do all the right things to keep God happy, and through them the world would be blessed. But in the midst of this suffering, having lost their temple and even the ability to make sacrifice, they started to identify themselves not as priests, but as the sacrifice. They began to see themselves 
as the sacrificial lamb. And in seeing themselves that way, their suffering began to take on meaning. It was through their suffering that they would be redeemed. The suffering itself became the way by which, you know, like offering that sacrifice, their suffering became the way by which they were redeemed. The way by which Israel might once again find a place as God's chosen people. They became that sacrificial lamb. And we see this being reflected in that reading from Isaiah that we just heard, when it talks about how they are despised, rejected, and yet it's precisely the fact that they are despised and rejected that now is drawing people to them, that now makes the nations bow down, that now allows the nations to come to and see God. This became even more developed than what's called the suffering servant songs that Isaiah writes that we tend to hear more about during Lent because we, we hear it as describing Jesus. But at the time it was written, it was describing the people of Israel. They were the ones who were rejected. They were the ones who were beaten. They were the ones who were being led like a lamb to the slaughter And yet through that came redemption. And now this way of thinking of things was in place when Jesus comes on the scene. And it was a way for the disciples to understand what had happened to Jesus. His humiliation, his conviction, his death, didn't represent a defeat, but rather represented this sacrificial victory. He becomes the lamb. But John takes it one step further by calling him the lamb of God. Because that means that this is the lamb being given not by Israel, but by God's own hand. And by the time we get to this description in John, we see that this whole sacrificial cult has been turned on its head. It's gone upside down. Instead of being God's people offering sacrifices to keep God happy, it becomes God offering sacrifice for us for our redemption. And this change takes place because of suffering. One of the things that I have discovered in my time in ministry is that the people who understand and embrace the gospel most quickly are those who know what it is to suffer those who have experienced being ostracized from a community, those 
who are poor, those who have been needy, those who have felt desperate. They feel the need for God and that, that suffering that they go through becomes a way of connecting them to other people. When people study um, giving in the church, one of the things that they discover pretty quickly is that those who make the least give proportionately the most to the church precisely because they know what it is to be in need. And so they are more likely to share their resources with those around them. Those who know what it is to long for the gospel are more likely then to share that gospel with those around them. Jesus spends his time in ministry precisely with the neediest, precisely with the broken, precisely with those people who are suffering. Even to the point of saying that for the wealthy, for those who are well off, it is so hard for them to come into the kingdom of heaven. Perhaps because for those of us who are well off, it's harder for us to see the need for it. It's harder for us to see our connectedness to those around us and our connectedness and need for God. But Christ, as the Lamb of God, as the one who suffers, and in that suffering brings redemption, in doing that, becomes one with everyone who suffers, everyone on earth. And quite frankly, that's everybody. At one time or another, we come to know what it is to be in need. At one point or another, we know what it is to be in that deepest and darkest place and to need what Christ then comes to us to offer. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what John the Gospel writer wants us to see. God finds us in our suffering and God suffers for us so that we might be one. Christ takes on this flesh, lives this life, knows this suffering. And it's when, the, it's when we're willing to let that suffering show and to let that the gospel shine through our suffering that other people begin to believe that the gospel really is something. It's when we show our own vulnerability and God's presence in that vulnerability that people start to find a place for themselves in the gospel. 
It's precisely in that suffering, as Isaiah points out, that we shine brightest as that new beacon. And others see. And others come. And the reign of God grows. Amen.